So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn with me to the book of Jude. It is right before the book of Revelation. So it's almost at the very end of the New Testament. We're going to be beginning in Jude chapter 2 this morning. right before Revelation, Jude. Jude is short for Judas. Now Jude is only 25 verses long, but it is action-packed. Um, some time ago, our family would rent movies on Friday nights at Hollywood Video. And we would we'd get candy, and we'd have popcorn, we'd usually get pizza, and we'd have a little movie night with the, with the children when they were young. And, and uh, so we'd go through there and we'd be looking at movies and I'll, I'll never forget one time I asked uh, this man that worked there if he knew anything about this certain movie. And he said, oh yeah, that's a fast action shoot em up with a high body count. I was like, okay. So um, Jude is a fast action shoot em up with a high body count. So let's read the whole letter together uh, this morning. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. For certain men who were designated for this judgment long ago, have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into promiscuity and denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you though, uh, you know all these things. Uh, now I want to remind you though, you know all these things. Uh, the Lord, having first of all saved the people out of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. And he, uh, he is kept with eternal chains and darkness for the judgment of the great day angels who did not keep their own position, but deserted their proper dwelling. In the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them committed sexual immorality and practiced perversions just as they did, and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Nevertheless, these dreamers likewise defile their flesh, despise authority and blaspheme glorious beings. Yet Michael the archangel, who was, uh, when he was disputing with the devil in a debate about Moses' body, did not dare bring an abusive condemnation against him, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they don't understand. And what they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, they destroy themselves with these things. Woe to them, for they have traveled in the way of Cain, have abandoned themselves to the error of Balaam for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These are the ones who are like dangerous reefs at your love feasts. They feast with you, nurturing only themselves without fear. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, pulled out by the roots, wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied about them, Look, the Lord comes with thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict them of all their ungodly deeds that they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. 
These people are discontented grumblers, walking according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember the words foretold by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you, in the end time, there will be scoffers walking according to their own ungodly desires. These people will create divisions and are merely natural, not having the spirit. But you, dear friends, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, expecting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on some who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. On others have mercy and fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless. And with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority over all time now and forever. Amen. So this morning will be more of an introduction to this letter. Now there are some very important key things that we need to know before we start to look at this. Uh, the first one is to identify who this person is that's writing the letter. Uh, he's, he's identified himself as, J, as Jude. And of course Jude, as I said, is short for Judas. Um, there's a couple of fellas in the Bible that come to mind right off the bat. One is the half-brother of Jesus, and one is an apostle. And so which one of these two is it? Well, it's not the apostle. Uh, the apostle Judas was sometimes called Thaddeus. It's the same person. And uh, he's an apostle, and he's listed among the twelve. And you can read the twelve that are listed there in, in Luke chapter 6 and in Acts chapter 1. And in both of those instances... Uh, this fellow by the name of Judas is described as the son of James. If you look here at Jude chapter 1, verse 1, we see that this is the brother of James. That does not automatically exclude, because we don't know exactly family lineages and stuff, but um, good strong indication that this we're not talking about the apostle. Uh, he is the son of James. Um, and if, if Judas the apostle was the author of this letter, we would expect him to identify himself as an apostle, wouldn't we? But instead, he does the opposite. He excludes himself from the 12. Look at verse 17. Dear friends, remember the words foretold by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see that the author of this letter is excluding himself from those 12. So it's not Judas, the son of James. It's Judas, the brother of James. And James, of course, is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And we saw that in Acts chapter 15. So he was a very, very important uh, person in the early church, and especially in Jerusalem. Uh, James is the author of the book of James. And uh, here we see that uh, these two fellows, Jude and James, would be half-brothers of Jesus. What does that mean, half-brothers? They've all got the same mom, but they don't all have the same dad. Jesus, of course, was not Joseph's son. He was God's son. Uh, but James and Jude, Joseph was their father. So this is why we refer to them as half-brothers. Um, we remember when 
just give you an idea how many kids Mary had, um, we remember when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth and uh, they did not accept him. They, re they rejected him. Um, but uh, in Matthew chapter 13, and I'm going to read verses 55 and 56, it says, Isn't this the carpenter's son? I'm talking about Jesus. Isn't his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all of these things? And so right off the bat, you can realize that Mary had five boys and at least two girls, because sisters is plural. So she had at least seven children. We don't know how many daughters she had. But uh, Judas, uh, Jude, is the baby of the boys. So J Jesus was the oldest brother. And then there was James. He's the one that we're talking about here. Uh, that's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's the one who wrote the letter that we call the book of James. And uh, then Joseph and Simon. So Judas was the baby boy. And, um, you know, uh, we used to go to a, a church in northern Kentucky, and at one point they had a pastor there named Warren Wiersbe, who went on to be a very famous pastor. He's wrote a lot of books and commentaries and uh, a well-known pastor. And so um, a lot of people at that church waved that flag all the time. Yeah, we're Calvary Baptist Church. Warren Wiersbe was our pastor. It was funny when I went to went to Bible school uh, online, and a lot of my you kind of have to tell them what church you are. That was a credential, you know. Actually, if you want to go to Bible school, you actually have to be a member of a church and in good standing at that church. And so I had to tell them what church I went to, and and uh, some of the professors would email me, "Isn't that the church where Warren Wiersbe?" You know, yes, it is. Uh, he's not there anymore. That was a long time ago. But um, uh, my point is, is that, you know, when, when James writes a letter, you would expect him to say, hey, I'm the brother of Jesus. And you expect Jude to say the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm the brother of Jesus. That's who I am. That's why you need to listen to me. Uh, but that's not at all what happens. Uh, we remember that these two boys were brothers were uh, humbled by the fact that, you know, you can imagine what that would be like as a, as a Christian after Jesus had been crucified, raised from the dead, and the early church was forming and, and the missionaries were going out, the apostles and others were going out and founding churches and teaching people the gospel and people were believing and uh, there's all of these miraculous things that were happening that was authenticating the gospel. It had to have been a very exciting time and scary also because of the Roman Empire uh, and enemies of the cross in general. But if you're one of those people that was alive back then and you had rejected Jesus for all that time he was teaching and performing miracles and you didn't believe in him. You know, so this was his brothers. You know, I remember James, the very first people that Jesus um, saw after he rose from the dead was his brother James. And so these boys finally believed in Jesus, and so there's a great deal of humility uh, with that. And, you know, in a church, sometimes you'll see someone saved, they're young or a new Christian, they come in and they think they know everything and they're the most spiritual, and they don't realize that there's other people who have been serving Christ for a long time, you know. And so these are the things we see, and so we see some humility with James and Jude, you know, in the way that they address themselves. Uh, they did not believe until after 
the resurrection. Look at how uh, James opens his letter. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 1, he says, James, a slave of God and a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, no, James is not saying, I'm the brother of Jesus. He says, I'm the slave of my Lord Jesus Christ. Jude opens his letter up the same way. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And so he identifies himself in the light of his older brother. Well, not a great deal of, of information about Jude. We don't know a, a lot of information beyond uh, outside of this letter itself and outside of what we know about Jesus' immediate family. That's kind of where we draw most of our information about um, these folks. Um, but Paul says something very interesting in 1 Corinthians that kind of sheds some light on what was happening after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ in those days of the early church, uh, in particular with the apostles, but also uh, Jesus' brothers, which would include Jude. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, uh, Paul is, of course, talking about himself and uh, Barnabas in that passage, if you, if you even wanted to turn there, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And uh, he's talking about how there's, they're receiving, Barnabas and Paul are receiving criticism. And so Paul is giving a defense, and I don't want to take too much time to detract to, to from that, but mostly just want to shed some light on Jude. But uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, it says, this is Paul talking, he says, don't we have the right to be accompanied by a Christian wife like the other apostles, the Lord's brothers, and Cephas? You see? And so right then and there, you see that the apostles were married. Jesus' brothers were married. Peter was married. And that their wives were accompanying them. So you can see that Jesus' brothers were actively involved in spreading the gospel. Itinerant pastors and preachers and traveling. And that their wives were going with them. You know, not to chase too much of a rabbit here, but uh, that statement makes it sound like Paul was married. Which is not how we think of Paul, is it? Uh, let me read it again. Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a Christian wife like the other apostles? Like, don't Barnabas and I have the right to be accompanied by our wives just like the other apostles? Jesus' brothers and Cephas, Peter, you see. And so uh, when you get to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul begins to give some very uh, intense instructions on uh, widows and the gift of celibacy and these kind of things. And so when he, he introduces this in chapter seven, he identifies himself in the group of the unmarried and widows, you see. And so we are, and then Paul talks about he has the gift of celibacy. So everybody thinks, okay, Paul never got married. Well, no, it looks like Paul was married and his wife's probably passed away. And instead of Remarrying, Paul feels like God, the Holy Spirit, had entrusted him with the gift of celibacy, you see. So, very interesting. I have to check chapter 9 in light of chapter 7, and chapter 7 in light of chapter 9, you know. But uh, very interesting. But at the bottom line, regardless, uh, the apostles were married. And uh, the half-brothers of Jesus were married. And their wives traveled with them in the ministry. Uh, which is very fascinating to me, a very interesting fact. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Uh, now, so this is the man that we're talking about. Jude is the half-brother of Christ. He did not believe in Jesus until after he got 
uh, Jesus was rose from the dead and made his appearances to his family. And, and they're like, oh, Lord, were we wrong about you? You know, as we remember, they were trying to remember in the cartoons of the big long hook, the little shepherd's hook, where they were trying to put the hook around Jesus' neck and pull him off the stage. And you remember that, right? They're like, you need to do something about your son, Mary. And they were all trying to get Jesus' mind right. So a lot of humility now. So he is the half-brother of Jesus. He is um, an active member of the early church, a leader in the early church. Uh, but even so, he identifies himself as a slave to Jesus and the younger brother of James, who he obviously looked up to a great deal. Now, uh, this letter is considered a general epistle because the audience is not specified. Uh, there's no names given. There are no uh, geographical markers. And so we don't know exactly who this audience is. It's, that's what we would refer to as a general epistle. So it's written to everybody. But even though that's true, there are some very uh, specific things in this letter that lead us in a certain direction. I think we should make some very strong conclusions. Uh, this letter is just jam-packed full of Old Testament references and examples. Um, full of them. Begins with the Exodus. It talks about the death of the Israelites in the wilderness. Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses' body. Cain. Balaam. Korah. Enoch. Adam. A great deal of information about the Old Testament there. And then uh, he even makes references to non-biblical Jewish literature. Um, twice in here, he will make references to non-biblical Jewish literature. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know that uh, he does not, he is saying things without having to give an explanation. You know, when Paul went to a lot of the Greek cities, he had to start from scratch and start talking about the God that made all things. You know, but if he went to a synagogue, he didn't have to start there, did he? And so this is what we see. Uh, if you look um, at verse 5, look, look at how he says this. He says, now I want to remind you, though you know all these things, you see. And so this was an audience that was well-versed in the Old Testament. It was an audience that was very familiar with the Jewish literature that was written outside of the Bible. And so... Easily, we can see that this is the primary audience is directed towards Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians. Um, even though that's true, now you and I are all students of the Old Testament too. And so we're learning about Balaam and Korah and these kind of things. And so uh, it's very much directed towards us as well. But initially, a very Jewish Christian audience. Um, the purpose of the letter, uh, he says, you know, he, he started out wanting to write a letter about our common salvation there in verse 3. But instead, he felt compelled to sound a warning siren. And look at how he describes these, these people. Uh, verse 3, he says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. And so... Uh, Jude has condensed the entire body of doctrine taught by Christ and the apostles down to one word, faith. There in verse 3, he says, contend for uh, the faith. 
And so that one word faith is now encapsulizing everything. The gospel, all things that Christ has taught, all things the apostles has taught, all of it, he has condensed into one word, faith. Contend for the faith. You know, last week we were finishing up the book of Philippians and we were encouraged to, to be content. And here we're being encouraged to contend. And those two words are very different, but they're only different. But if you look at them in the English language, just one letter changes everything. Content ends with a T. Contend ends with a D. What a difference one little letter makes. Big words that have completely different uh, meanings. If you can imagine what it would be like to try to learn English. Like I'm, I'm kind of toying with learning Spanish right now. I'm not real serious about it, but I'm, I'm learning. And uh, one of the, the toughest things is these, how words conjugate. You know, run, ran, running. And so if I saw the word contentious, I would probably think that's a conjugation of the word content. But uh, content and contend and contentious look very similar, but they all mean very different things. Uh, for example, in Spanish, when you say the word pero, which is P-E-R-O, it means but, not B-U-T-T, but B-U-T. I like dogs, but I also like cats. But if you give it two R's, if it's P-E-R-R-O, it means dog. Wow, totally different. They're pronounced the same. And when you're hearing someone speaking in Spanish and they say pero, you have to look at the context of what they're saying to know what that word means. So all of that to say, let's be very nice to people who are trying to learn English. So Paul tells us to contend for the faith. Uh, this word contend comes from the athletic world. It is uh, talking about striving for victory in like a competition. Um, uh, at one point when I was in high school, it was a very short period of time, but I had narcolepsy just for a little bit. Just it was narcolepsy. I was running a race and I fell asleep. And uh, when it was over, you know, I didn't win. I was kind of frustrated. And I went up to the judges and my coach. Everybody was like, you know, hey, I got narcolepsy. But they said, you know, it's too bad. You know, if you snooze, you lose. And um, so, um, but anyway, um, Contending for the faith, this word means to strive as an athlete. If you've ever been in sports, you know that it takes skill, but a great level of commitment. Um, I, I wrestled in high school, and so you would have to go without food, and uh, a lot. You didn't eat, and it was brutal. It was terrible. It was brutal. And, uh, but I loved it, I guess. Uh, every day, we would have practice after school, and you would put on your sweats, and then you would put on a plastic suit over that. And then you'd put more clothes on after that. And by the time you're done with practice, all of that was just this gooey, nasty, wet clunk. And my mom washed that every day. Every day. And because you did that, I don't have the cauliflower ears all scarred up like other wrestlers. just because my mom washed my clothes every day. But it took a lot of uh, commitment on my part to do that. And if you've ever talked to anybody who's been in sports and took sports seriously, or if you've ever done that yourself, you know that this is something that requires a lot of skill, but it requires a lot of commitment. And this is the word that Paul is trying to describe in us defending the faith. 
contending for the faith, protecting it. We are to be very committed. Um, study to show, to show yourself approved means that you're developing those skills to where you have knowledge. And, but there's that level of commitment. You know, you can be a very skilled person, but not have any commitment, and you won't be very successful. And so this is a very strong word Paul is using, or I keep saying Paul, don't I, that Jude is using to uh, describe how these uh, Christians in this letter are supposed to be, their attitude towards the faith. We also notice that when he, he's, uh, that, that in this letter we read it, and so Jude is talking about things like immorality, he's talking about things like rebelling against authority. Well, those two subject matters are all falling underneath this umbrella of this word faith. So when we're contending for the faith, there's more to it than just talking about our salvation, getting to go to heaven, Jesus is coming back one day. There's much more to it than that. It involves identify, identifying sin. It, it, it involves the Christian life. It's something that, that Gene was bringing up at the end of the Sunday school lesson. But, so the faith is more involved than just the gospel, more than just our salvation. It's, it encapsulizes everything that we are as a believer. And uh, when you've got little cracks in that, in that shell, there are things and ways to get in there. And so Paul is talking to us to be very uh, disciplined and committed in defending the faith, which is not just Bible doctrine, not just salvation, it's your life, your, your entire life as a Christian, contending for the faith. So uh, when was this letter written? Uh, that's something we also do not know. That's very uncertain. There are some markers. There are a couple of markers. Um, we know that he's warning uh, them uh, to protect the faith because bad news is, is infiltrating the Christian community. And uh, the warnings that he gives are very similar to what we see in 2 Peter. When you read 2 Peter and then you read the letter of Jude, they're very similar. But there's a very significant difference, and that is that 2 Peter is warning them that they are coming. And Jude is saying, they are here. Very different. And so that helps us to date Jude after 2 Peter. And the things that we know about Peter and his life, that helps us to date 2 Peter. And so Jude would follow shortly after that. Uh, the fact that it's a primarily a Jewish Christian audience at the beginning gives us possible indication that it's before the temple fell, but we can't really be sure of that at all. But there's a very significant difference there. Look at 2 Peter. Uh, I'm going to read it, but 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people. Well, he's talking about the nation of Israel. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So it's a warning that there's this coming. Jude, in verse 4, says, Some men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They're already here. They have came in unnoticed. And so those two time elements there gives us an indication of when this letter was written. Um, and uh, that Second Peter precedes Jude. Um, some people have also understood that when I read verse 17 earlier, when we were talking about how the author has excluded himself from the 12 apostles there in verse 17, 
Some people have taken this to mean that this letter is written after the apostles have died. Uh, remember the words foretold by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so they think that means that this letter is written like after they have all died. But that's not necessarily true. It's uh, more accurate, I would say, is that, that what Paul or what Jude is doing there is asking them to bring to remembrance the things that have been taught to us by the apostles. What did Jesus teach us? What have the apostles given to us? Because as the apostles presented the gospel and taught and they moved around, what they were saying wasn't changing. You know, and if you think about it, when you read through the different epistles and stuff in the New Testament, you know, Paul would say, it's, you know, remember Philippians, is it, look, I don't mind saying this again. I don't mind bringing this issue up again. Don't, don't apologize for asking me the same thing over. You know, what they taught was what they taught. It did not change. And so this is really what that's referring to. So I don't think that's really a marker of uh, the, the apostles have passed away at this point. And in closing, there's a, another interesting feature of this letter. And that is Jude uh, gives groupings of things in threes all through the letter. It's very interesting. Um, Yogi Berra, that you may know, uh, a very famous catcher for the Yankees, and he was a manager and a coach. Uh, he's said all kinds of little funny little sayings. Uh, he's the one who always says, it ain't over till it's over. And if you've been to our ballpark, um, they have, when you first come in the main entrance, there's a lot of sayings up there, like there's one from hum Humphrey Bogart that says, a hot dog at the ballpark's better than a steak at the Ritz. Uh, there's one by Yoga Bear up there that says, because he tells the team, he says, all right, guys, let's break off into pairs of threes. And so Jude gives things in threes, and, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, look in verse 1. He says that we are called, loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. So we are called, loved, kept. All those three. And that's past, present, and future. So you were called by the Holy Spirit. We see the whole trinity here. Called by the Holy Spirit. You are kept by God the Father. Or you are loved by God the Father. And you are kept by Jesus Christ. So that's the future. It's talking about our future. Past, present, and future right there. The, the letter actually ends the same way. With the past, present, and future statement. Um, before all time now and forever. Oh man, that's past, present, and future. There's a three, three grouping there. So like if you look at verse 2, you see mercy, peace, and love. Go back to the very last verse, verse 25. You have glory, majesty, and power. Authority is not a fourth thing. Authority is what he's talking about at the end. He says, and authority. Authority before all time. Authority now. Authority forever. Amen. So very interesting that he does these things in threes like that. Now, as we continue our study, we're going to look closer at these, uh, these people that Jude, is, that, Jude is, that Jude is warning us about. But uh, just look at verses 12 through 13, how he describes them. These are the ones who are like dangerous reefs at your love feasts. What a picture. You know, we have dinner together in the back. He's, he's describing those dangerous reefs that, that in your ship, you try to keep your ship from hitting. Because it's a complete disaster. You know, if your ship hits the reefs. And he's describing them at, the, at our dinners. And they're nothing like, they're just they're dangerous reefs. What a picture. What a picture. Um, uh, they're dangerous reefs at your love feasts. They feast with you, but they're nurturing only themselves without fear. No shame. No fear. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds. 
trees in late autumn that are fruitless, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. They're wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds. They are wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. I think we're going to find that this letter is very practical. The warnings are very practical. It's talking to us about things like not giving in to our fleshly desires, rejecting authority, being divisive, um, uh, living only for ourselves, and, and much more. And so when you and I are confronted with the truth of, the, of God's Word, we have to make a decision. We have to make a decision if we are going to uh, modify what the Bible says. And you might think, well, that's what the Bible says, but then this is how I see it. <laughs> you know, so what you're basically doing is you're redesigning God in your own mind. So now God fits the way you can handle it. So that's idolatry. You know, so you either make God conform to you or you take your tendencies and you move them underneath the authority of God. These are the two options and choices that we have when we are confronted with God's truth. So uh, just in closing, we see here in verse 1 that we are called, loved, and kept. That's just how we know who we are in Christ. Uh, very secure, called, loved, and kept. Then in verse 2, we see what we get from that. We receive mercy, peace, and love. Let's pray.